Hi everybody, this is Eric Mercier from Juice Imports, uh, and I'm going to walk you through this month's wine club. Um, so this month we have three different wines, uh, a white, a red, and then something that kind of falls somewhere in between, um, almost an orange wine, almost a white wine, it's not quite sure what it wants to be. Uh, so we'll start off with a red wine this month, which is uh, Oki Pinti's SP68. Uh, this is coming from Sicily. So Sicily is, uh, in southern Italy, it's an island sort of off to its own. It's actually closer to Africa than it is to the northern parts of Italy, like Piemonte. Um, and culturally speaking, it's, it's drastically different from the rest of Italy as well. Um, you can see this distinctly in their, their food culture. Uh, the fact that they use a lot of citrus, um, the fact that they use a lot of sweet ingredients and savory foods. Um, they often refer to this style called uh, agrodolce, which is basically sweet and sour. So this idea of trying to balance out sweet things with sour things, both in savory dishes and in dessert dishes. Um, and also a, a lot in the influence of um, their spice profile. Uh, they like to use spicy ingredients, but then also things like um, almost flavor profiles reminiscent of, of curry, um, things that you would see in sort of Morocco um, and a lot of influence from uh, Arab countries as well. So um, things like gelato, for instance, came from, from that side of the world. So it's completely different than most of Italy, but the wine scene is fairly familiar. The one really horrible thing about uh, Sicily is that um, because of the ease of production there, um, it became sort of the center for mass-produced wine. A lot of the wine, uh, even now that's produced in, in Sicily, is bulk wine that's shipped off to um, either France or northern Italy to be blended into other wines in order to bulk them up, make them more flavorful, more intense, more delicious, um, but also coming from a place that's very cheap um, to actually farm. So something like only 10% um, of the wine from Sicily actually makes it into a bottle. The rest of it is shipped off in tanker truck to be blended elsewhere. So producers like uh, Ariana Occhipinti uh, are really changing the game in Sicily for the better. If we look back sort of um, 20, 30 years ago, there was hardly any producers bottling, but thanks to uh, Ariana Occhipinti's generation, you're starting to see a lot more wine. So she is the niece um, of the winemaker from um, a really famous winery called Kos. And basically through uh, his teachings, she learned about organic farming, um, about making wine with minimal manipulation. She decided that she wanted to be a winemaker, so she went to winemaking school and realized that in winemaking school, they basically teach you the exact opposite of the things that she thought made um, her uncle's wines really special. So she decided to sort of veer away from... Um, that technical side, the the sort of more schooled side, uh, and do what she knew in her heart was the best thing to do, which was to, again, farm organically, um, focus on biodiversity in the vineyard, and then work as hard as she could to eliminate additives in the actual winery. So she's been making wine for, um, at least for this project, for, I believe, like 14 years. I think 2006 might have been her first vintage, 2005 or 2006, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, so even though she's still very young, she's, she's, um, she's made wine for quite a few vintages now, which is very exciting. 
The wine that we chose for this month's wine club is her, uh, in theory, entry-level wine, although uh, as the price point would indicate and the quality level would indicate, it's definitely not an entry-level wine. Um, this wine is made from the classic grape varieties of this particular region. Uh, so this region is near uh, the town of Victoria. And uh, these grape varieties are called Frappato, which makes up 70% of the blend, and Nero d'Avola, um, which is 30% of the blend. Um, Frappato is very light, very fresh. I always describe it as being sort of similar to um, Pinot Noir or Gamay Noir. Um, it's very playful. For me, it's always very reminiscent of strawberries. Um, there are very few red wines that, um, that you taste that really evoke strawberry. There's lots that are cherry or raspberry, but I, I think strawberry is a, a unique characteristic to this grape variety, um, as well as maybe Grenache in certain instances uh, when it's made in a lighter style. Um, and then Nero d'Avola is uh, sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum. I always describe Nero d'Avola as being um, almost like Italian Merlot. Um, it tends to have a little bit darker fruit characteristics. It's quite supple. Um, it almost always has this uh, interesting chocolatey characteristic to it that I find extremely appealing. So by blending the, the sort of light and fresh and crushable um, frappato with this sort of more dark and brooding Nero d'Avola, you end up with something that's really, really well balanced, something that is very much medium bodied, um, you know, really gastronomic, goes with food uh, really easily. Um, for fermentation and, and winemaking here, uh, everything was done in concrete. Concrete tanks make a ton of sense, especially for a wine like this that's going to get no benefit from oak. Um, not only that, but Italian wines tend to be um, more on the oxidative side and tend to have a little bit of volatile acidity um, to almost a vinegary quality, which is, again, in small amounts, not a bad thing. Um, but it's something that I'm particularly sensitive to. So the fact that she's um, aging her wine in, in large format concrete, uh, this helps prevent that oxidation, which then usually prevents uh, too much volatile acidity. So this is going to be a little more on the delicate side. Uh, it's still definitely um, rustic. You know, it's not a super polished version by any stretch of the imagination, um, but not quite as much as some of the Italian wines that are are maybe a little bit too on that side for my own personal tastes. And realistically, because I'm curating the wine club, uh, <laughs> you're going to end up with wines that are to my taste more often than not. Um, I've been a huge fan of Ariana, Ariana Occhipinti for years now. Um, when we first started our importing agency, she was one of the first people that we reached out to. Unfortunately, she um, signed with an importer sort of right before um, we reached out. So she's been imported by somebody else. But we finally got the opportunity to include her wines in the club, even though uh, we don't um, actually import them. We're literally just putting them in here because we adore them. Um, she also makes a white wine in the same range, uh, the SP68 range, that I definitely suggest trying to get your hands on. Uh, it's one of my favorites, um, and it's, it's super unique, but very drinkable at the same time. Um, all right, so moving on to our next wine here, uh, another wine that we don't actually import. Uh, after doing this wine club for almost two years now, we've decided to um, start branching out and including wines from uh, more and more other importers as we get the opportunity. We love the wines in our portfolio, um, but really this wine club is definitely about building up the community um, and just sharing wines that we think are delicious, not just the wines in our, in our own portfolio. Um, so, 
I met my friend uh, Gabriella uh, sort of just before Christmas, I want to say, at the end of last year or something like that. Um, and uh, her little importing company is called Garneau Block, and she imports wines uh, called Forty Knots. Uh, Forty Knots is located in the Comox Valley uh, on Vancouver Island. Um, and after tasting through their lineup, I was super impressed. I thought these wines were um, very clean, very precise, very universally appealing. Um, I always use the reference uh, in-law wines uh, for wines that you can bring over to your in-law's place and you're not going to offend them, but you're also not going to have to drink bad wine. Um, that's kind of my ultimate goal with certain wines. And this is very much in that vein. Um, this particular wine is made from Pinot Gris. Uh, Pinot Gris is the pink um, variant of Pinot Noir. So Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris are almost genetically identical other than their skins have slightly different colors. Pinot Gris being almost like a rose color. Um, and Pinot Gris tends to get a bad rep because it makes uh, usually two different styles of wine. One that's completely neutral and flavorless, like the Pinot Grigios that have become so popular from northern Italy. Um, or you end up with these ferocious, sort of boozy, um, very powerful styles from Alsace. Uh, so in France, right on the border of Germany. Um, people often forget about sort of this middle style where you can make something quite fruity, um, almost reminiscent of a dry Riesling, but with a little bit less uh, acidity um, from Pinot Gris. And this is a, a really great example of exactly that, where the emphasis is very much on fruit. Um, when we're looking at this particular site uh, at 40 Knots, um, they're uh, located right next to the Salish Sea, uh, and their soil types are... Um, Mostly sandy gravel, but if you kind of go deeper below that, where the roots are actually sort of diving down into, um, you can end up with some schist-derived clay. Clay is really great for retaining moisture um, and giving nutrients and the right amount to the actual vines. So this is really great for having very healthy vines that are not suffering too much um, from lack of nutrients or lack of water. Um, it's often good to have a little bit of clay in the soil. Um, as far as actual temperatures go here, uh, for those of you who haven't been out to Vancouver Island, it's a pretty mild place. Um, it doesn't get too insanely hot in the summer, doesn't get too insanely cold in the winter, uh, and so it ends up being pretty ideal for, for this style of agriculture. They've been farming organically for a while now, and their uh, whole idea is to convert to being biodynamic. Um, they really like the idea of being like a farmstead, um, something that's sort of self-sustaining, um, not just focusing on monoculture, on, on just grapes. So in this case, they have sheep on their property, uh, they have ducks, they have a little bit of everything, and the goal is definitely to continue that direction. From a winemaking perspective here, uh, this is about as classic as it gets. They just take uh, whole clusters of Pinot Gris, uh, crush them, uh, collect the juice, and then ferment it in tank. Um, then they're doing élevage in tank, so resting the wine in tank. Um, I always find élevage such a beautiful word. It basically translates from French as, as uh, raising um, or bringing up. So it's kind of the idea that these, these wines are your children and uh, this is you sort of nurturing them and getting them ready for the world, I suppose. Uh, so élevage is sort of that resting period um, where wine is either aging in barrel or in tank or um, just hanging out in some sort of vessel, getting ready to, to be sent off into the world as a finished product. 
Anyway, so it's hanging out in tank for this period of time. Uh, and then they're doing something really interesting, which is fining using bentonite. Um, so all the wines that we've included in wine clubs so far have been unfined and unfiltered. And this is a philosophy that we tend to believe in. We don't really believe in the idea of um, fining a wine for, for no particular reason. But that being said, um, because they, I, I think this wine is as delicious as it is, um, and their approach to farming and winemaking are so holistic and in line with our own, um, we decided to include this despite the fact that it had been fined. What makes this interesting is that it's been fined with bentonite, um, which is a, a clay that helps clarify the wine. Most wines um, in the world are fined using animal products, so things like isinglass, uh, things like um, different types of uh, proteins derived from milk products, usually casein, uh, or things like egg whites. So the fact that they've gone the extra step and uh, have decided to use organic bentonite clay just really shows that their whole goal is definitely to move towards um, maybe even taking this out. So their their wines are still vegan, um, and they've been extremely gentle with the actual wine, uh, but you know have still manipulated it in, a, in the most micro way possible. Um, looking at this from a, a flavor profile perspective, uh, this is one of the most aromatic Pinot Gris that I've ever had. Um, it's showing a ton of really orange fruit characteristics. So that very much orange blossom and tangerine and um, almost like that citrusy quality that you get from coriander. Um, it definitely has a saltiness, which I can only assume that I'm picking up on because of its proximity to the ocean and my ability, uh, <laughs> my mind's ability to play tricks on me. And when I know that something's grown near the ocean, I just automatically assume that it tastes salty. Uh, <laughs> it's the, the power of suggestion, I suppose. Um, but either way, I think this wine is absolutely delicious, very thirst quenching, uh, at, you know, less than 12% alcohol. This is a, an easy lunch wine or brunch wine for me. So the final wine that we have in this month is sort of our last hurrah uh, of Milan Nestrak. Um, we've absolutely adored the wines from, from uh, Nestrak over the last three and a half years. They were one of the first producers that we reached out to when we were starting Juice, and he agreed to sell us some wine. Um, over the years, we've worked really hard to support his wines and share them with the community and um, get really excited about those sort of things. Um, but unfortunately, we just have not been able to translate our passion um, to any sort of economic success. <laughs> uh, as hard as we try and sell their wines and as, as much positive feedback as we've had from consumers over really enjoying the wines, um, they've been a really hard sell. There's a handful of reasons for that. One is that uh, he's from the Czech Republic. So um, Czech Republic, not exactly uh, a region that many people are going into their local wine store asking about, um, which is a shame because I think in sort of three, five, ten years, uh, I think the Czech Republic is going to be super popular from a winemaking perspective. There's a handful of other producers there that we really like, uh, Jakob Novak, for instance, or Dobra Vince, um, both really fantastic producers in the Czech Republic. So hopefully over the next couple of years, we'll start seeing those trickle out onto the international market a little bit more. So because of that, that's definitely made it a hard sell for us. The other thing is that the grape varieties are um, a little less familiar to a lot of people. So this particular wine is made from Gruner Veltliner, Müller-Turgau, and Welsh Riesling. 
Gruner Veltliner is sort of the classic grape of Austria, but it's trickled into the surrounding um, countries as well. Gruner Veltliner uh, is very green tasting. It's very herbal, um, has quite a bit of an earthiness, especially when you harvest it quite ripe. It can almost have uh, like a brothy quality to it, which I find extremely intriguing, uh, very savory, goes extremely well with food. Uh, Müller Turgau is a grape variety that was developed um, about 100 years ago now. And it was developed to uh, basically be able to ripen in really cold climates. So even though it's uh, you know quite chilly and quite a short growing season in the Czech Republic, they're able to get Müller Turgau completely ripe. Um, it tends to be quite fresh, quite mineral. Um, it can have a lot of characteristics similar to Riesling, but usually less aromatic, so less fruity. Um, so more sort of on the mineral side of, uh, of um, Riesling, for me at least. And then the final grape, Welsh Riesling. Welsh Riesling for me is um, always a nice way of rounding things out. I find that Welsh Riesling tends to have very soft corners, has a very mild acidity. Um, it has this... Um, I don't know, sort of gentleness that I find really makes a lot of wines more drinkable when you when you blend it in. I don't think that it necessarily has the potential to make wines um, of outstanding quality, but in, you know, sort of like a moderate range and moderate price point wine, I think that it adds a lot of um, a lot of joy, a lot of friendliness. Um, so this is coming from some of Milan's younger vines planted on uh, Loos. Uh, Loos is sort of a category of soil that's divine, defined by being blown by the wind, um, sometimes called uh, aeolian soils. Um, so this is all wind-blown soils um, over top of sand. So really light soils um, tends to yield these wines that are very delicate, very, very pretty. Um, it's fermented on the skins for a short period of time. Um, the whole idea is that he, he likes to really extract some of the flavors from the actual skins of the white grapes. White grapes, um, just like red grapes, a lot of their flavor is actually held in the skin. And normally for white wine production, we just sort of chuck out the skins and just sort of sacrifice up to 60% of the potential for flavor versus Milan really wants to get as much as he can out of those skins. Um, but also while making the wine still very drinkable and not quite orange wine level. So you'd notice that this wine is maybe a little bit golden, but not fully orange, and that's because of a very short period of time on the skins. Um, this is aged for about six months on lees. Lees are basically the spent yeast cells, so once the yeast is done fermenting, it kind of goes dormant, sinks to the bottom of the tank, um, and these can give off what we call autolytic characteristics. Um, autolytic characteristics are often bready notes, um, so things like toast, um, things like a nuttiness, classic kind of qualities of, of uh, the lees. So he's aging this on lees for about six months um, before he's bottling it unfined, unfiltered, uh, and I believe there's no sulfur in this wine either. Um, the other two wines that we have have small amounts of sulfur added for stability purposes versus Milan. He's confident enough in his winemaking that he, uh, he doesn't add any sulfur. Um, from a flavor profile perspective, this wine is awesome because it's equal parts um, sort of sweet and savory, which maybe is sort of our theme this month accidentally, that agro dolce sort of style, um, the sweet and sour. Um, 
So for me, again, some of that brothiness definitely comes through from the from the Grunerweltliner, um, and almost a little bit from the Müller Turgau as well, where it has notes of um, like really good like white shiitake mushroom or something along those sort of lines. Um, it has a beautiful floral quality to it. it has some green fruit characteristics to it. Um, and then also this really interesting thing that I assume is coming from a combination of lees and, and mild oxidation is that it picks up almost these notes like hay or different grains. Uh, and I find those characteristics really uh, enjoyable. They end up being quite parable as well. Um, I think some of the tasting notes that I wrote were, were things like flax, um, but this actually makes it quite parable, especially with grains, um, things like uh, frica, things like um, like bulgur, things like, um, I don't know, whatever type of grain you, you feel like rocking, um, you know, toasted barley. I remember a couple of years ago, we had this really good like toasted barley risotto that I think would be an awesome pairing for this particular wine. Uh, as far as ageability goes on this wine, I think it's definitely best to drink in sort of the near future uh, over the course of the next year. I don't know why you would hang on to it any longer than than it is already. It's not going to improve with age. It won't deteriorate over the next year or anything like that. But I definitely think that it's, you know, this is just a fun one that we threw in there. Not only that, but it's in a party size bottle. So the one liter bottle, um, I think one liter bottles are, are <laughs> sort of the perfect format um, you know, you always kind of want that one extra glass at the end of things. And, and this is a really good way of getting it. Um, if you need any more of this particular wine, you sadly won't be able to get it. Uh, we are pretty much sold out. I think this wine club sold, uh, almost entirely. So there's maybe a couple bottles floating around, but hardly any at all. Uh, so hopefully you don't like it too much. Well, I do hope you like it too much. I'd rather have you, uh, leave you wanting more, I suppose. Anyway, so that's the extent of the wine club for this month. Uh, we'll catch up again next month with uh, three new wines. We're already working on it. Um, super excited about the lineup. So definitely stay tuned. And if you have any questions, feel free to send me an email. My email is eric, E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye. Bye.